Well, if you're here as a first-time guest, of course, we want to welcome you. Thank you for being here. And our church family knows that we've been journeying, journeying through a small epistle in the New Testament, the book of Titus. And we're currently going through a series called The Testimony of Our Church. And we introduced this series a couple weeks ago. And I want to make sure that I emphasize three letters and, and one word in the series. It's, it's our church. This is the testimony of our church. And though it's written uh, 2,000 years ago uh, to Titus, who was shepherding people, and he, he was directing them and warning them of false teaching and things of the world that were creeping into the church, the testimony that we're talking about, and as we receive the instruction, this is for us. The Cretan culture was one that indulged in gluttony and immorality. And they embraced lying and deception, and actually to the point where they even took pride in being a lying culture. Drunkenness, sexual immorality, gossip were all pervasive and deeply intertwined. And like so many cultures in the first century that were subdued by sinful lifestyles that were clinging to the, 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 the it, which was like a residue on the, on the members who, who had got saved, the great challenge that the church faced and one that we still face today is instructing the church in how we are to be testimonies to the lost culture around us. What does it mean for us to live out our faith as the called out ones? What does it mean for us to be sanctified in this world? To be set apart to live for the glory of God? The worldliness of every culture always tries to crawl into the church. And it sometimes happens in subtle ways and other times, not so subtle ways. And this remains true since the church began at Pentecost, and it's just as true today as we're surrounded by a postmodern, lust filled culture that relentlessly entices us to compromise. And sin is always calling us to compromise. Sin detracts from the glory of God because it calls us to worship self and serve the creature rather than. The Creator, Or if I can say it a different way, sin is always trying to stain our testimony. That's what we're, we're talking about. We're talking about being a difference in the world and allowing people to see the difference in our lives. And sin is a stain, like a ketchup or mustard stain on a pure white wedding gown that attempts to draw all the attention away from the beauty of the dress. So is sin. So is sin as it tries to hijack the glory of God by featuring our failures for the lost world to see. And I want to make sure that I do an effective job of keep reminding us of this. Our lives are a testimony. Our lives are a testimony. We will be the only Bibles that people see during the course of a week. And when we need exhortation, we, we need to be reminded of such things. Every day we're given a new opportunity to give a testimony or an account to how we choose to live. And 
as Christians, our lives give witness. They give testimony to what we believe and how our saving relationship with Christ through the gospel encourages us, encourages us it enables us to live for his glory. Well, we started our journey in Titus chapter 2, and it began with looking at the testimony of older men in the church. And we looked at chapter 2, verse 2, to see what Paul wrote to Titus. And he let him know that as older men mature in Christ, that the testimony of their gospel-converted heart would be marked by their temperance, their dignity, their sensibility, and their soundness. And then Paul shifts the attention to the testimony of older women in verse 3, whose maturation in Christ allows them to be examples of being reverent in all their behavior, controlled in their speech, not addicted to wine. Their testimonies of sobriety, and they will be good disciples of younger women. And this week in Titus uh, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the Holy Spirit now leads Paul to speak to the testimonies of younger women in the church. And so our first set of messages, which we called, in the sermon titles were being older and wiser, okay, allowed us to look at the testimonies of uh, maturing Christians, the seasoned saints within the church. And now we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to talk about what it means to be younger and teachable. I want to pray, and I I hope you're ready to receive what God has for us. And before I read the word, let's just ask God to um, give us clarity as we we look to his word uh, to guide our time. Let's pray. Father, you're good and gracious, and you're kind, and your word is instructive. Your word is life. It gives us all that we need pertaining to this life so that the the men and women of God can be adequate, that we can be equipped for every good work. And by your divine design, it allows us to give you glory. And this world is always trying to put forth counsel that contradicts your word. And even the good counsel that is received is usually a principle that is hijacked from the scriptures. And no glory is given to you. As we prepare our hearts and minds to receive the word of truth, would you allow our minds to be illuminated? Would you allow us to um, circumspect, to reflect, and to evaluate our lives? And may you allow us to be different as a result of the teaching that we hear from your word. I pray, Father, that you would guide me, help me to be most useful to our church family. Help me to teach the word with precision and to honor your word. And Lord, at the end, we'll we'll magnify who you are and we'll praise you for it. We commit this time to you, asking you to bless it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let's read our passage together. We're going to start with Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And we've read it the last couple weeks to get the full context, but for the sake of time, we're just going to read the first five verses, which say this. And this is Paul writing to Titus, and he says, But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. 
Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Well, I try to do this as uh, out of habit. I, w- I want everyone in the room to know what the main gist of the sermon is, and we include that with the outline in the bulletin every week, and you can read it with me, the sermon propositions in your notes, and it says this, your teachability allows the gospel and God's word to be magnified in your testimony. Your teachability allows the gospel and God's word to be magnified in your testimony. And we're going to look specifically at younger women in the church and talk about this, but I want to make sure that as we consider the, the entire passage, as we consider the point that God would have us see and, and take away as an entire church, that we have something for everyone. And we're going to focus on verse 4 today. And before we dig in, I, I want us to see how discipleship is reflected in this passage with the retreat coming up. Pastor Kurt is going to, without a doubt, challenge us, exhort us in many ways as he unpacks our understanding of what discipleship is and what it looks like. And I think it would be worthwhile for us to just take a moment, and this will be a good primer for us for our retreat timer. Primer for our retreat timer. Primer for timer. Okay? Again, there are two aspects of discipleship. A disciple is a, you guys know this already because we, a disciple is a follower and a learner, right? I see all the heads nodding. That's exactly right. It's very important that we identify ourselves correctly as disciples of Christ. And this is what it means to be a mathetes in in the Greek. We follow Christ and we learn from Christ. We follow Christ's example and we learn from from Christ's instruction. And we also follow others who follow Christ. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11.1. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. We can also um, see the transition. And this allows us to build the bridge from being a disciple, a follower, and a learner of Christ to becoming a disciple maker and seeing ourselves correctly as a disciple maker. We are a leader and a teacher as a disciple maker. Follower and learner as a disciple, and as we grow and as we mature as a disciple of Christ, we become more effective leaders and teachers. And I shared this last week, and I'll continue to share it again and again, that the call of the Christian life is not just a call to discipleship, it's a call to disciple making. It is a call to be effective leaders and teachers for the sake of Christ and the church. And last week we made this connection in our passage as we concluded that this is how older godly men and women are used in the church. Verse 3 even concluded with the descriptive phrase, teaching what is good. Older godly women 
make good disciples, and the same is true for older men. Why is this? Well, first, the testimony of their lives provides a great example for us to follow as, as we look to them, as we see how God has changed them, as we see how God has matured them, how God is using them. And second, it allows us to see uh, their, as, they, as they teach us, as they grow in their understanding of God's instruction that has shaped their lives, it allows us to look to them as teachers. And their godly character provides all of us, who, for all of us who are younger, with an example to follow, to, to look to them as leaders, as they've learned from Christ and his word, and it also allows us to look to them as teachers, as they're able to impart God's wisdom by way of counsel and instruction. And I know I sound like a skipping record, but it's intentional because it's so foundational to our spiritual understanding. It truly is. And for the younger people in our crowd that don't know what a skipping record is, it's a blast from the past, okay? You know, we live in the days of the, the CDs and the MP3s now, okay? But skipping records... Um, you just you just have to trust us on this one. I, it's 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 just different. And there are some in this room that are old enough to also know what eight tracks are, and they're they're really old. Okay, those folks are really old. Wow. No, I, I just I, I want to make sure that we get this. We got to get this. We got to get this. This is good preparation for our retreat time too. A disciple is a follower and a learner. A disciple maker is a leader and a teacher. We need to burn this into our thinking. And so in our passage, after verse 3 concludes that older women are teaching what is good, verse 4 starts out with a purpose statement that comes in the form of a, what's called a hine clause in, in the Greek that is translated so that or in order that they may encourage the young women. And this verb is a present active verb and it carries the idea of this continually happening on a regular basis. It's the word sophron, or it's a cognate of the word sophron, okay? Not cell phone, okay? Sophron. The word is translated sensible, and so the verb form is really calling younger women to be sensible, self-controlled, and sober-minded. And one commentator says, it aims for a self-control that works from the thoughts outward into words and actions, in other words, the instruction is something that is internalized. And this really provides a picture of how God's word functions in the life of a believer. When a person first gets saved, are they godly immediately? When a person first gets saved, are they, are they godly immediately? No. No, you can say it. They're not. And even for a lot of young Christians, would, would their lives be described as being godly? Or holy lives. No. And, and, and though the, they have instant perfect righteousness that comes through faith in Christ in the gospel, right? We have that righteousness and we have that perfect standing before God. But what takes place in our sanctification is maturity and growth. And as we put off the old self and renew our minds with God's instruction, this transforms us and enables us to put on or become 
more like Christ. Very different also from moralism, where people simply put off a bad behavior and put on. And that's really what our world tries to do in a moralistic way. We want our kids to be good kids, okay? Don't do that, do, do this. Stop doing a bad thing and start doing a good thing. The recipe for moralism is externally driven and focused. And this brings us right back to our sermon proposition. Your teachability allows the gospel and God's word to be magnified in your testimony. How so? The gospel calls us to repentance. And repentance is an internal reality that takes place in the inner man, both at the heart level and at the mind level that allows us to see our need for Christ to rule and govern our lives. And it also allows us to see our desperate need for his instruction. And Wayne Grudem defines repentance this way. It's a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. After you get saved by the grace of God through the gospel, our continued repentance through a changed heart is what helps us put off that old person. Our repentance leads us away from who we used to be. And it allows us to see our need for the instruction that comes from God as we renew our minds, as we see the commands in scriptures that he gives us. Another reason why the, the, the commands of scripture are so important. They, they move us towards Christ-likeness. They grow us and mature us in our faith. We renew our mind with the word and we begin to learn and grow in our understanding of what our Christian testimony is to look like according to God's role for our life. And there's a direct correlation with our repentance and teachability. And we see this connection in our sermon proposition and this text, which I'll share more about as we progress. Your teachability allows the gospel and God's word to be magnified in your testimony. And today our passage is going to use young women as our example. So in verses 4 and 5, this is what we have. It's in your outline. There are seven testimonies of young and teachable women. And remember our context. It has older women teaching them and encouraging them. But let's start with testimony number one. Young, teachable women learn to love their husbands. Young, teachable women learn to love your husbands. That's the first blank in the, the bulletin in your outline. The Greek phrase translated to love their husbands literally means to be husband lovers. And again, in the present tense, it conveys the idea of this being something continuous or habitual as it relates to love. And you might find it interesting that women need to be instructed to love their husbands. And this isn't apparently a naturally obtained discipline. And one commentator shares this insight. In Titus's day, marriages were often arranged and love was an acquired thing. It is no less so in days when dating and romance are what lead up to marriage. For the settled discipline of marital love is a deeper and more advanced kind of love that does not naturally rise within us, but must be received from the Lord and taught by his church. This is where discipleship and instruction 
can help young people be prepared for marriage. It's one of the reasons why we, we consider it so important to do premarital counseling at our church for, for young couples. And specifically, older women help younger women be prepared. And this is a very important ministry in the church. Older women know what's coming. They, they, they can help shepherd and, and help the mom be prepared for when the phone is ringing and the husband's calling from work and the kids are, have fevers and they're sick and crying and you're running on four hours of sleep because the newborn wakes up every two hours to nurse and your in-laws are coming in for the weekend to see the house for the first time, and they're really excited to see the baby. And all of this on top of discipleship and ministry relationships that are vitally important, right? It can be overwhelming. It can be very overwhelming. And a love based only on emotion is probably not going to get you very far. One pastor even said, mature love is not an emotion that wells up, but a discipline that is worked up. And this isn't to minimize the emotional aspect of love because there most certainly are feelings involved, but a love grounded in the gospel and governed by the truth of how God instructs us as believers in our roles is what allows us to, pre- to prevail in the fulfillment of our roles. And so how do we define love as, a belie- as believers? In your mind, you have a definition or you have a thought or you have some concept of love in, in your mind. Very important question. Vitally important for us to know as disciples, especially if the Lord Jesus Christ, when asked for the greatest commandment, he said it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on and he commands us as husbands to love our wives. And then he commands all believers to love one another. He even commands us to love our enemies. And then we come to this today, right? And women in the first two testimonies are going to be exhorted to love their husbands and to love their children. How do we define love as believers is it a feeling or emotion is it an attitude is it a thought is it a choice is it obedience what is it i remember 18 months ago over 18 months ago i was back in hickory north carolina and I was ironically having a conversation with Pastor Kurt Gebhardt, and we were talking about love. We were, we were talking about like what it means in, in the, the scriptures. And, um, we, you know, we just exchanged some thoughts, but it led me on a, it led me on a, a path to just say, what is it? What is it? I mean, the world has no idea. Not going to get any help there. Okay. But even as a, a, a believers, do we have an understanding of what it is? And so I began working on a working definition for it, spent months just trying to consider all the aspects that, uh, in God's word that, 
speak to love. And you'll notice that I printed out the definition for you in the bulletin because I wanted you guys to, to have it and to also be able to look at the scripture, scripture reference. And the reality is this could be a sermon on its own, but I want us to read it together and feature the scriptures that support the definition. And perhaps at a later time this week in your quiet time and a devotional time, you can spend some time just reflecting more on this definition. But God wants us to have a firm grasp, a firm understanding of love. So here we go. I'll, I'll read the scriptures as we go, as, as I read the definition at the same time. And this is what it says. And you can turn to the scriptures because you already have them if you want to do that. But I'll be moving at a pretty rapid pace, so you, you, you better get your thumbs ready. True biblical love is God-originated. Okay, 1 John four sixteen and 19 say this. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And then verse 19 goes on to say that we love because he first loved us. The origin of true love originates in God alone. And he is both the source and the supplier. Let's continue. True biblical love is a God-originated heart attitude. Philippians 2, 1 through 5, familiar passage, but amazing just to see the emphasis on love right at the beginning in the first few verses. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And it describes what love doesn't look, look like. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. And verse five finishes by saying this, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the Lord's attitude. The Lord had an attitude as it related to love towards us. And verse five just confirmed it. Our love is also an attitude. Let's keep going. True biblical love is God originated heart attitude, manifesting itself as a fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5.22 says this, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, all those nine things that come right after it. But I'll just highlight the very first one, the very first fruit brought forward in emphasis so that we don't miss it. It's love, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. True biblical love is a God-originated heart attitude manifesting itself as a fruit of the Spirit that enables both our actions, and I put Matthew 5, there, but I say to you, love your enemies. How about that one? Pray Pray for those who persecute you. That's on one end of the spectrum as it relates. And then we get just a, a general description and a passage that we've read a bunch of times before and alluded to. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. 
Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked. Love does not take into an account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And both of these passages describe the actions behind true love, stemming from the love of our enemies all the way to our love of each other. And love not only involves our actions, but our emotions as well. Shortest verse in all of Scripture is what's up next. John eleven thirty five. Two words in the English. Jesus wept. And those who are familiar with the context of that passage, they know that Lazarus, whom Jesus loved, had just died. And Jesus came a few days later after he was already buried. And he sees Lazarus's family, uh, also surrounded by Jews who, who came. And he sees them all crying. And he sees the emotion and he sees the sting of death and the impact that it had on this family. And it grieves him deeply. That's how it describes it. It, it says that it grieves him deeply and that he's deeply moved within. And here our great sympathetic high priest allows us to see that emotions are real when we love. Let's continue. True biblical love is God-originated heart attitude manifesting itself as a spirit, as a fruit of the spirit that enables both our actions and emotions to imitate Christ. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 say this, therefore be imitators of God. And then it calls us beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. True love calls us to imitate Christ. We'll keep going. It also calls us to imitate Christ in specific ways. First, in servanthood, Mark 10 and 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then in sacrifice, 1 John 3, 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And then by commitment. Beautiful passage, Romans 8, 37 to 39. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. And through his love, there is commitment. There's a, a, a commitment to us. And what a reassurance. What a blessing to, to, to read. That God through his word and his own demonstration and purposes allows us to witness, to know and understand what true love is. 
and at the risk of even sounding cliche, the question has been asked, how much does God love us? How much? And we've heard the answer. This much. This much. This much. Through the cross, we've received the ultimate expression and definition of love. And it involved everything in totality of who Christ is and what he was willing to do on our behalf. And if we want to have a thorough understanding of love, we can't miss it. We can't miss it. We have to see it in the fullness of what it is. And I share this. I hope this is, a, this is an exhortation to us all who are called to love. It, it involves everything. Our attitude our actions, our emotions, our service, our sacrifice, our commitment, as he works in us and through us as conduits of his grace. Conduits of his grace. It involves the totality of who we are. And your teachability allows the gospel and God's word to be magnified in your testimony. And keep in mind, it's our individual testimony of love, which reflects our corporate testimony as a church. Younger, teachable women learn how to love their husbands as they're discipled in the gospel and pointed to Christ's ultimate example of selflessness. And it's something that we cherish. I mean, every time that we celebrate communion as a church family, we, we look at that expression of love. We cherish that expression of love. It's something that we do and need to do regularly. I mean, every day of our lives, right? We just, we, we, we can be reminded. And I'm going to talk about some practical ways that um, women can even love your, your husband spiritually in just a moment. We can look at this definition of love and the passages we read, especially in the area of attitudes and actions, are just chock full of application for us. First Corinthians, right? 13, 4 through 7, love is patient, love is kind. We can look at that instruction. We can renew our mind with that instruction, and that allows us to put on Christ. Philippians 2, 1 through 5, the emphasis again on unity, unity. In Christ, us being together. Church, we're, we are in this together. God has called us, God has called us and called this ministry and, and cornerstone and has brought us to this time period and this lifetime for us to strive in unity and to, to do all that we can together in love. Well, since the young women are serving as testimonies for us today, I want to feature some application points from the entire definition, all the while reminding us that 
these things are, are learned, okay? No, no one's claiming to arrived yet. Just two points of application. This is for all the young women, those married and those who will be married, uh, to receive this, uh, this application. Love your husbands spiritually. Love your husbands spiritually. And second, love your husbands physically. Let's start with loving your husband spiritually. And even though the man's role in the home is to be the spiritual leader, there are many practical ways that a wife can love her husband spiritually. Allow me to share three. Make it a priority to pray for him. Make it a priority to pray for him. And though Ephesians 6, 18 is a call to us for, to pray for each other and to pray for all the saints, a wife can love her husband spiritually in great measure through her prayers and her commitment to pray for him. Ask your husband specifically how you can ask God to help him and then commit to praying on his behalf. A second way that you can love your husband spiritually is by being gracious. 1 Corinthians 13.5 helps us to see that love does not keep a record of wrong suffered. And 1 Peter 4.8 reminds us to keep fervent in our love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. A multitude, not all. Not all, but, but a lot. And if there's a breach or a breakdown caused by a sin, well, then it probably will need to be verbally addressed. And there are going to be those occasions where there are those offenses that need to be talked out. But grace in love can cover a multitude of sins. And being gracious can reduce a lot of marital strife. It's a terrible place. It's a terrible place to be. When you're living in a place where everything is a big deal. It's a big deal. It didn't work out. It's a big deal. It's not a big deal. Everything that we think is a big deal is usually not a big deal. <laughs> we make it a big deal. Make it a big deal. Ah. I'm saying that it's my own heart. Oh, my goodness. And you are a gracious woman. <laughs> ah, confessions of a pastor right in the middle of the sermon. Um, be gracious. Be gracious. Extend grace. A gracious and understanding wife is a spiritual blessing to her husband. A third practical way to love your husband spiritually is by encouraging him. First Thessalonians 5.11 instruct all believers, it instructs all believers to encourage one another and build one another up. And so oftentimes encouraging words are really hard to come by. Someone once said, man doesn't live on bread alone, he also needs buttering up. <laughs> Expressing meaningful words of encouragement can really bless him. And again, this isn't any uh, push to serve the ego, okay? 
This is, this is taking some time to, to let him know that you praise God for the humility that you see in his life. You praise God for his servanthood in your, in your family. You praise God for how he prioritizes other people. His commitment to, to serving others can serve, all this can serve as spiritual fuel to his heart. And you can regularly remind him and celebrate the joy of a promised eternity together. I, my wife does that on a regular basis, and that encourages my, spirits, my spirit. Just, just, just the reminder that, wow, you know, when, when sometimes things in life and ministry and they seem so hard and challenging, just to have that eternal focus is such an encouragement. You can share uplifting verses and messages to bless his spirit. Talk about what God is teaching you or how you see spiritual progress being made in your children because of his investment of time. Many different ways. Well, I know those were quick, but there are three. These are practical ways to love your husband spiritually. And I also just want to share just a couple uh, physical ways, which is the second point of application. Love your husband physically. And certainly physical intimacy is one expression of love in a physical sense. And 1 Corinthians 7 serves as a good reminder to both husband and wife in this area. Verse 4 says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And both married men and married women need to be sensitive to their spouse's needs in this area. And verse 5 warns of the danger of temptation when either spouse lacks sensitivity in this area. A second way for a, life to, a wife to love her husband physically is through the care that takes place in the home. And we'll talk more about this when we, we get to workers at home because all of this is, is um, leading up to other testimonies. But one of the greatest blessings for me, and I don't sp- experience this uh, every single day, I'll just give you a glimpse of reality, but there have been days where, and I know a lot of men can appreciate this, where you just come home and the smell of dinner is in the air and um, you're able to sit down and you're, you're starving and you, you've been, been served. And it's been aptly said that the way to a, <laughs> to a man's heart is through his stomach. And I think there's, it, sh- it should be a proverb in there somewhere. Um, truly, um, taking care of those physical needs are important. Okay. There's other subtle ways, a favorite dessert. There's other non-food things too. A unique, (laughs) sorry, I'm stuck on the food. A unique gift, a surprise date night, a surprise babysitter, an unexpected nap, going to a special event, going to a sporting event. The list is endless, okay? Well, we need to finish verse 4 before our time disappears. And the truth is that it'll be quite simple to do because um, it's, the emphasis, again, is on love. We're looking at seven testimonies of young and teachable women. Testimony number one, young, teachable women learn to love their husbands. Testimony number two is this. Young, teachable women learn to love their children. The Apostle Paul uses the same Greek form of the word love, only this time it's used with the word children, and it can be rendered children lovers. 
And there is such a thing as a natural affection that I think should be expected at a human level from uh, someone who has children, right? I just, there is a, a, a gravity there towards your own kids. But the kind of Christian parenting that Paul expects within the church must be inwardly produced by the Holy Spirit and encouraged by the fellowship of believers. And again, we can look at our definition to see the full orbed Christ-like love that is involved um, not only in taking care of our children and or taking care of our husbands and loving our husbands if we're a younger, um, younger woman, married woman in the faith, but as it relates to kids, it, it, it certainly involves the entirety of the person as well. And mothers are able to understand this, I think, at such a more profound and deeper level. You are. Having a child <laughs> changes everything. Changes everything. And it starts with a woman's body, which is never the same. Just not. It's physically demanding and it takes its toll. Hormones change. I should have one of the doctors come up and, and describe it for us. Ligaments get stretched out and the stomach and abdomen change. And giving birth can sometimes involve having a C-section. And the pain of childbirth is incredibly difficult. And physical recovery from that experience can take weeks and months with all the challenges that can even come with postpartum. And all the ladies who have given birth know the love and sacrifice that it involves just to carry a child in, gest in gestation for 40 weeks. And then once the baby is born, there are adjustments to nursing the baby for the first time and the lack of sleep that comes with loving and caring for an infant that is so dependent. Sleep is reduced to fractions and days can be expanded to what feels like an eternity, right? For all the ladies unmarried or for those young couples, I don't want this to be a discouragement, but it's just a sobering reality when we consider all the demands that come with having a child. And it's also the very reason that we hear of the tragic stories of mothers who just abandon their babies or physically harm their babies. Because they're unable to cope with all the demands. And again, older godly women can speak to these issues much more effectively than I can. And the fellowship of the church is a gift from the Lord to be a, a support system to encourage both moms and dads to love their children in a Christ-like way. Well, before our time is up, allow me to, to conclude with some practical application points that I hope encourage young mothers to learn to love their children with a Christ-like love. And I'm going to use the same points I used for the first one. Love your children spiritually and love your children physically. Let's talk about uh, spiritually. Disciple them. Disciple them. Our job as parents is greatly simplified when we think about it in these terms. Faithful Christian mothers point their children to Christ. From the earliest days... We want to do all that we can to point our kids to God and help them see that 
He is real. And I've talked about the book and mentioned it, I think, from the pulpit before, Shepherding a Child's Heart, which is a well-known book and I believe a, a must-read and a must-own uh, book for, for those who are Christian parents. It's, it's so good. And Ted Tripp calls this developing their Godward orientation, right? That, that even from the littlest age that you can have an impact when, when you pray that kids are watching what you're doing, even the, even the littlest. And even for the ones that aren't even there yet and, and have no cognition, you can be praying for them, right? You can be praying for their salvation. And I know there's many moms um, and dads in this room that have started to pray just even from the moment of conception, that, they, that when they found out that there was pregnancy, that they started to pray for their salvation. Well, in his book, he then goes on to talk about formative instruction as we teach them simple lessons about who God is, his characteristics, and his attributes, informing their understanding of sin and its consequences. And I rejoice in just even the teaching that takes place even with our littles over in our children's ministries. That, that is intentional to do this very thing. This when you start talking about sins and consequences through formative instruction, this opens up the door for the gospel and their need for Christ. Okay, so the first way to spiritually love your children is to disciple them. The second spiritual way is to discipline them. Proverbs thirteen twenty four says, "He who withholds his rod, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him." disciplines him diligently and for many moms this can be a a tough transition from going from that infant who is is precious who looks so much like you and is so cute (laughs) it's it's amazing that god makes them look like us Uh, it helps us it it, it helps us get through it i'm just just certain of it but um you know it's it can be hard right because all of a sudden they become more aware, and when they have a sense and the rebelliousness that starts to come out after a year, I would say 12 to 18 months, um, a lot of people began to see the need to, to spank and, and, and to discipline. And this proverb makes the point very clear. We will discipline our kids, which is one of the greatest expressions of love. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And again, older, experienced moms can be a huge support as they know just how hard and unpleasant that this can be. And God's word actually even says this in Hebrews 12, 11, No discipline is pleasant in the moment, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so if you need some help in this area, again, Ted Tripp's book is, is a great book. Um, Elise Fitzpatrick uh, wrote a book called Give Them Grace, another excellent uh, mothering and parenting resource. Uh, Don't Make Me Count to Three by Ginger Hubbard, another book you may or may not heard of. But those are strong resources as well. And young teachable women learn to love their children spiritually when they learn how to effectively disciple them and discipline them. And of course, there are physical needs and physical expressions of love. They come in the forms, all different forms of hugs and kisses and diaper changes 
and laundry and meals and rides to school and packed lunches and so on. But I want to mention just two unique ways that uh, you can bless your kids physically. And Pastor Curry, I, I don't know if he'll come to a place where he met, mentions this at the retreat when talking about discipling your kids. But he says, and this has encouraged me greatly too, just in parenting, celebrate your kids. Celebrate your kids. When you see them celebrating, when they wake up in the morning and you see them for the first time celebrating, celebrate them. When you're a dad that comes home from work and you've been gone all day, celebrate seeing your kids. Celebrate seeing them. Joy, smiles, bless them encourage them that that has a that has an impact on them it truly does we all are so blessed and it encourages our spirit greatly doesn't it when somebody's excited to see us it, it makes a big difference versus you know maybe the quick turn away or maybe the you know no acknowledgement or no smile it makes a difference and it will make a difference in the lives of your kids. Next, one physical way, play with them. Um, never lose sight of being a kid. Making sure that we get down on the floor and that we're wrestling and we're, we're having some fun. And, you know, I'd say, you know, for some of the, the, the dads and some of the moms, as your kids grow, then all of a sudden they can even turn into a little competitive thing, right? You know, they're able to give a little pushback, you know, have a little fun with that and play games and shoot baskets at the park and do things so important physically well I wanted to conclude with this story on Susanna Wesley the mother of John and Charles Wesley and it says that she had this impact on her sons and I just thought that this would really encourage um, the, the young women and young moms she and her husband Samuel were dedicated Christians. Altogether, they had 19 children. John was the 15th child and Charles the 18th. 11 of their children died. Eight lived. Heartache. There were precious few conveniences in those days. No automatic washers, no electric refrigerators, no running water in the home, no telephone, no radio, no quick means of communication or travel. Yet we read that Susanna Wesley expected each child to know the alphabet by the time he or she was five years old. At six, the kids started, uh, started to be schooled in their big living room, and Susanna taught her children six hours a day, from nine to 12 and from two to five. So there was a two-hour <laughs> period for lunch if you factor that in. I understand. Uh, later, of course, they went to various formal schools, including Oxford. Furthermore, she gave one hour a day each week to each child's spiritual development. It made such a profound impression on her children that later, in times of distress, her sons declared that they wished they might have the privilege of counseling with their mother again. Powerful powerful testimony most of us are familiar with the impact that John and Charles went on to have for the sake of Christ and the church and I praise God for godly mothers and I rejoice to be at a church that is filled with so many that are aspiring to be just that 
Your teachability allows the gospel and God's word to be magnified in your testimony. Testimony number one, your young teachable women learn to love their husbands. Testimony number two, young teachable women love, learn to love their children. And obviously we're out of time. Okay, and so uh, verse 5 actually has five testimonies that we're going to get to the next time, including um, the expression of being workers at home. And I'm sure that might uh, be something that you're eager to learn and hear about. So we'll pick that back up after we get back from the retreat, and we'll spend um, additional time uh, continuing to look at the testimony of testimonies of younger women, all right? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, rejoice in you. We praise you for the time that we've had to reflect. And Lord, um, all of us are at different points and different seasons in life. And I trust you, Heavenly Father, to know what is best um, as it relates to application and continued uh, growth as you have prescribed for um, the young mothers and younger women in our church and that we would all know the blessing and the reality of discipleship. I pray, Father, that you would use this retreat this coming weekend to change our lives, to change our spiritual lives. And we would have a firm grasp on what it means to be a follower and a learner, that we would have a much firmer grasp as we develop into the leaders and teachers that you're calling each of us to be. And I praise God. For the godly women in this church, I pray that you'll continue to strengthen them. There's so much that goes into mothering. There's so much challenge. I pray that you'll continue to give them and supply them with all that they need to glorify you in their role. And that they would do so with joy. And that they would see your smiling face, your pleasure, and how they do it all for your glory. Again, we... Thank you again for this time. We look forward to the next time that we can gather in this place, around this pulpit. In Jesus' name, amen.